Welcome to The Shelfformers, the show about toys, why we like them, our connections to the figures, and their relevance to bigger topics. I'm your co-host, Suku, and today we're going to take a moment and pay tribute to a legendary author, J.W. Rinsler, who recently passed away. We're going to look at his contribution to the Star Wars franchise, as well as world-building books in general. And I'm your co-host, Darby, and we'll be talking about the intersection between lore books and collecting, headcanon, and also discuss some listener feedback that we've received. Before we get into today's episode, by way of introduction, I'm Darby Harn, the author of several novels now, including Ever the Hero and A Country of Eternal Light. I'm a senior writer for Screen Rant and a contributor for Star Wars Newsnet. I'm also part of the Movie News Network podcast, talking all things movies, TV, and pop culture. And I'm Sugu, your co-host. I collect mostly Transformers, but I've recently started collecting Marvel Legends figures. Uh, I've been collecting Transformers since about 2004 when I moved to Japan. Uh, I'm very interested in tabletop gaming, so I also have a wide collection of board games. I work in IT and education, but you can also find some of my travel writing on allaboutjapan.com, where I have written various articles about my life and perspectives in Japan. So today we're going to talk about uh, author and editor J.W. Rensler, who... Star Wars fans probably know was the driving force behind a series of uh, making of books uh, about Star Wars, these great coffee table books from Lucas Books, making of Star Wars Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Fascinating behind the scenes accounts of, of, the, of the production of the films, among others, which we'll get to. But uh, J.W. Rensler, Jonathan Rensler, passed away July 28th uh, from pancreatic cancer. He had a, a battle with that in the last year or so. And um, he was uh, very well liked and well regarded by Star Wars fans, the Star Wars community. And certainly everybody he worked with, given the outpour of love and affection that he, he's received here in the last few days. And we thought it would be good uh, to talk about him, uh, his work, how it relates to collecting. I, I personally am a fan of all these books, and I guess I collect the books as much as I do anything else. And certainly they're a huge part. These types of books, not necessarily the, the making of Star Wars books, but books like them. Um, were a huge part of sort of what inspired me to be creative and um, sort of talk. And then I, we thought maybe we could talk to in general about sort of world building books. Uh, J.W. Rensler was also responsible as an editor and a writer for virtually every single Star Wars has all these great visual guides, visual dictionaries, uh, cross sections, character guides, things like that. So the entire prequel era up until uh, the Disney era. Uh, and that that sort of decade plus, uh, he was responsible for virtually all of it, if not all of it. And um, those things are uh, just r really interesting and, and fascinating. And if you're a Star Wars nerd or a nerd on any level, you probably own or have read uh, some of these books. But we'll kind of talk about that as we go through. And um, 
And then while towards the end of the episode, I think we'll talk about some feedback we got from one of our viewers or our viewers or listeners. So I, I think I'll just start by saying um, um, my first encounter, like most people, with J.W. Rensler was through his first book, books, uh, with Lucas books, which were 2005 for Revenge of the Sith. He was the the author of both the making of Revenge of the Sith and the art of Revenge of the Sith books. And those are two books which I absolutely love. They were, as much as they were there to sort of um, promote the movie, they were a great sort of unvarnished look behind the scenes in the same way that the other books about the original trilogy were very unvarnished. Just, you know, I, I remember in particular, there was a episode in episode three, the making of where they got to set. And this was the big scene where uh, Chancellor Palpatine fights Mace Windu and George Lucas thought that Ian McDermott, who plays the Emperor Palpatine, was going to do all of his own fights, the sword fighting, and no one else no one else thought that. <laughs> so of course, because how old is he at that time? Ian is, I think, is in his fifties uh, at this point. And no, older than that. I think in I think in two thousand three when they were filming, he's in his fifties. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not a hundred percent, but Ian is a great actor, a great sort of stage Shakespearean actor, and uh, he is not by his own admission a sword fighter, <laughs> and uh, so he had to learn it on the day. Uh, so there's a, there was a great Nick Gillard, the stunt coordinator responsible for all the epic fights in the prequels, glorious fights, uh, schooled uh, Ian McDermott, who obviously is a great student on it. And they got they got some Ian fighting Samuel L. Jackson in the movie. And I actually think just to nerd out a little bit, I think the Ian McDermott's obvious sort of. Um, what would you call it? Lack of facility with the sword fighting plays into that scene. Because uh, I, I think there's some kayfabe going on with Chancellor Palpatine and Mace kayfabe? Windu. Yeah, uh, kayfabe wrestling term. Uh, there's some there's some faking going on there. Yeah. He's throwing the fight. I mean, look, you and I have talked about this for decades before yeah. before even the podcast. But one of the things that I had long thought was with Palpatine and Yoda, using lightsabers should have been kind of beneath both of them. So having them yeah. kind of suck at lightsabers would be in character because I don't know. I when I saw them having that lightsaber battle, mm-hmm. I was like, what the hell is this? This is just these two are supposed to be the masters of the force. Who the hell cares what they can do with a lightsaber? Yeah, it it's um I love that scene, the the duel between Palpatine and Yoda. And I it's sort of the lightsaber sort of feels like it's the thing of last resort for both of them because they're such masters in the force. The scene is constructed where it's almost the it's basically the first thing they go to. I think if I was doing it, um, and I, I I don't have a problem with the scene, but I, if I was doing it, I think it would have been the last thing they did. Yeah, and it would have been they both have fallen down on you know they can't get around each other. The emperor is someone who does not need to use a lightsaber. That this is a master technic uh, tactician. He's all powerful in the force. He's much more powerful in the force than Yoda. Which uh, goes back to that scene with Mace Windu. He's out. He's much more strong. He's much more powerful than Mace Windu. Does not need to fight Mace Windu. And there's a little bit of like, oh, woe is me. Which he then he vamps really hard when Anakin yeah. shows up. He's like, Oh no, he's good trained, you know, but that they had to bring it back to JW Rensler. He was <laughs> that he had that insight into the production. He was on set for the entire production 
and um, he had all that insight and he was free to just provide that perspective. There might be some might consider that little episode, you know, George is like, what do you mean? He hasn't, he hasn't done any of the choreography for the fights that might think of that as embarrassing. I don't think George Lucas necessarily cared about any of that. So, but he did, he loved J.W. Rensler's take on it enough to let him uh, do the making of books for Star Wars Empire and Jedi, which then followed beginning in 2007. And J.W. Rensler was, became the editor of Lucas Books, and he was responsible for all of that stuff. As I said, the visual guides, uh, the visual dictionaries, the cross sections, all of that stuff that came out in that period there, going through the Clone Wars animated series. Uh, leading up into the sequel trilogy. He was not part of uh, any books related to the sequel trilogy. He didn't really explain why he sort of directed uh, any questions about that to J.J. Abrams, which I thought was unfortunate, but um, because he was a great resource, obviously, J.W. Rensler. But I wanted to mention in particular the the art of episode three book, uh, was a great book. It's one of my favorite books. So not just because of the behind the scenes, that insight into the production, the ways it could have gone. George Lucas was famous for allowing the art and the concept art to drive a lot of the creative thought process in the movies, especially in the prequels. But it it has a direct bearing on the action figures, the Star Wars action figures, because a lot of the concept figures, the concept art of characters in the uh, in that book in particular became action figures. The, the concept art is always fascinating to Star Wars fans, but a number of characters, uh, in particular the Jedi and clone troopers that were featured in the making of book that didn't get into the film actually made it into plastic. They were produced by Hasbro as action yeah, figures. Coincidentally, I just saw a video today about that on uh, Spectre Creative, I think. He just released a video about uh, Star Wars concept art figures okay. that were being made um, because like after Return of the Jedi, before the prequels, there was not a lot of Star Wars stuff. And um, yeah, there wasn't really anything. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so when they announced the prequels, they were basically just doing what they could. They kind of threw out what they could. And it was and that included some of the concept art. Uh, well, there was another one too, a Cami and Fixer. Cami and Fixer, who are not concept art. They were from a deleted scene from yeah. A New Hope. Well, all of that was kind of wrapped together. I haven't seen that video. I, I guess I just qualify to say there was some concept art figures that Hasbro produced. Beginning in 1997 or 98, Ralph McQuarrie made it uh, some of his concept painting from the original trilogy made it into action figure form. And so as some of the pilots and, and, and vehicles that they were doing at the time, the sort of in stage power of the force two line. And then they made a couple from the episode one in particular, as they got into the power of the Jedi line, but it wasn't until after revenge of the Sith, they really dived head first in which is this. So this is 2006. Now 2007, they sort of dived head first and that, and for the 30th anniversary in 2007, they went off the chain with the Ralph McQuarrie stuff. And that led them to some other uh, Ian McKaig and the, the prequel era, uh, Doug Chang, uh, that type of stuff. But I love that book, the art of both those books, the making of episode three, and then the art of, episode three those books were fantastic and the the books that the making of star wars empire and jedi are just absolutely essential if you're a fan of these movies if you're interested at all 
in the creative process and the production process of how these movies came to be. They're absolutely essential. I can't recommend them enough. And I is it most by DK Publishing? They're Lucas Books. Those three. Um, as far as I, as far as I know, DK did a lot of the, um, those visual dictionaries yeah. and stuff. I think the, the coffee table books, the making of books are Lucas books. Okay. But you know, one thing I think of all the time with the return of the Jedi book is, um, JW Rinsler was able to get a hold of the, when they were getting together, Jedi, George Lucas, Lawrence Kasdan, Richard Marquand, the director of Jedi, um, had these story sessions that they recorded in which they were talking through the story. And J.W. Rensler was able to, to listen to these and able to provide a transcript of this entire story session and the book. And this is very illuminating because one of how contentious the story session was, there was real sort of bristling competitiveness uh, in between Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan, who had very vastly different ideas for how Jedi should go and how this, this saga at that point should end. And you have Richard Marquand, poor Richard Marquand, uh, also rest in peace, by the way. Richard Marquand, who passed away a while back, was playing referee for, for these two guys. And um, and all these different sort of avenues and branches that the story could have gone is really fascinating. You have just a tremendous amount of uh, behind-the-scenes photos and production stuff. And um, for me personally, I'm a huge Carrie Fisher fan. There's a lot of great sort of uh, pictures of Carrie Fisher that no one had ever seen from those books as well. And so he was just a J.W. Rensler. Also, I should mention before I get too far away from it, was also a writer. He was a novelist. He had a book called All Up, which came out last year. Um, it was sort of a novel about sort of the, the space race. And then he was a writer also. He wrote a pair of episodes for The Clone Wars uh, that disappeared part one and two so and he seems to have been a great guy he was a guest on the resistance broadcast which was the is the youtube slash podcast arm of star wars Newsnet, which i'm a contributor for he's a very nice guy um, so you've met him i've no, i never have but he's um it just um from the guy the folks who have uh, john and Lacey and james they've um they were uh they interviewed him on a couple of occasions and he's a very generous guy he's very Nice guy, very well regarded. And uh, he would talk about anything that wasn't covered by an NDA, which there was <laughs> stuff. And I should say, too, just personally, before I get too far away from it, one of the absolute highlights of my life, I was very fortunate to go to Skywalker Ranch and visit and uh, uh, see some of the stuff, in particular uh, props and maquettes and things that were featured in some of these books and some of the documentaries that folks have seen about the making of the movies and um there's a lot of spirit in that place and there's a lot of you as a fan we're all sort of uh if we've watched these and we've read about these we're sort of familiar a little bit with skywalker you kind of know what the place is and i felt very familiar and i felt very at home uh in part because of books and people like uh, jw rensler so he was huge part of um, making Star Wars, uh, bringing, you know, the story of Star Wars to fans and to people and to history. Those book making of books are essential to, so a hundred years from now, when they're talking about Star Wars, those are sort of the, those are going to be sort of your sources, right? In a lot of ways. So, so yeah, I, I just thought it'd be a good, good to talk about him. I'm going to include some links in the pod uh, to uh, not just his books, but to um, the uh, Pancreatic Society, if folks want to donate or just learn more about it. So 
pancreatic cancer. So, um, so yeah, I, I, do you have any thoughts maybe on these books? Sugu, were these ever books that you, you kind of got into the Star Wars or just these types of making up books in general? I got into them from like the sidelines. Like I yeah. really liked reading them in the bookstore, really liked reading them in the library. I just never bought them, more or less yeah. coincidentally. Back in the days of yore when DVDs were a thing, I was always getting the uh, the collector's edition and watching the commentary and yeah. seeing how movies were made. I always thought that was really fascinating. All the all the decisions and the thought processes that went into getting a movie made or even a TV show. So, yeah, I always pay attention to that kind of stuff. And I'm really fascinated with the like the nonfiction books of fiction worlds mm. and jw rinsler wrote a lot of those right certainly with the visual dictionaries and things like that which p- people would probably not think of as fiction but one of the, the the unique things about the star wars guides and the visual dictionaries they included a lot of lore in the entries i guess you'd say mostly because they were where you found out the names and the little backstories of so many of these characters like you think of some of the star wars visual dictionaries they are primarily where you find out what you know they identify the make and model of the weapons they identify where these characters names uh where they come from if they have a little some of them have a little backstory um you don't get any of that outside of the visual dictionaries and this starts this trend starts in the west end games back in the late 80s where they would develop the sort of the sort of the rpgs and then that carried through into there as they got into the prequels then this sort of everybody has a name everybody has a story everybody has a history so they they carried on that sort of tradition and so in that way they were absolutely essential reading and they were very close to they were the, they were very similar to a lot of books that were I think we're probably going to talk a little bit about today that were primarily sort of derived from novels. So you know, sort of great novels, science fiction, fantasy series that have these sort of lore books, world books that sort of were encyclopedias, uh, for lack of a better word, about the world that they were the secondary world that they've created. And so Star Wars is one of the biggest secondary worlds, not just in terms of popularity, but just sheer volume in fiction, in media. And these all these visual guides now through the sequels, now through the Mandalorian, actually the Mandalorian visual guide has been pushed back slash canceled. Mystery. Really? Question marks. Yeah. A little of some saltiness from fans who are looking forward to that. So we'll yeah, have to why see what that's canceled? Like. No one knows. No one knows. Uh, I personally, myself, my pet theory is that I feel like there's another thing that's kind of happening right now is that the season three of The Mandalorian has been pushed back. Part of that's COVID. Part of it is uh, I think there's there's sort of some some flux, I think, in terms of the story, the narrative. I feel like they're sort of, you know, using the pause that COVID allowed them to kind of get a grip on where they're going with the stories so that's my thought but i could be completely wrong about that mm-hmm. but yeah um those books were just absolutely essential and and i love that stuff but the a big part of the gateway for a lot of people and just not even a gateway just sort of a deepening sort of a better understanding of star wars was through these books and there are so many examples of this. And I'm just a person who I, I was endlessly fascinated by the world of Star Wars. And then Star Trek, I I, I bought, especially during the next generation, where I, I just absolutely 
was head over heels for that show and that whole era. All of those books, there were sort of compendiums that were sort of like, you know, episode guides or sort of lore books or technical manuals. Or I read all of that. Yeah, the technical manuals, especially Star Trek, just blew my mind that they have all these schematics of Federation starships and Romulan ships. I'm like, what? But that's not that's not part of the show. Like that's all this extra detail that brings out like the the lived in universe, right? Like it makes it so much more real. Yeah, it makes it more real. That's the thing. That that's sort of the I think the object of a lot of these books is to sort of give it more depth and dimension than the screen can possibly give it. And so it becomes it leads to sort of, you know, eventual sort of fights over canon. Because nothing in those books, and George Lucas was always adamant about this and open about this from the beginning. It's like if it's not in the movie, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. But Until some people, the Zon books. Uh, well, even then, I mean, a great most, if not all, of the Zon books is uh, rendered moot at this stage. Now, but didn't uh, George Lucas say that? Okay, those are canon. No, he was. You know, he he was pretty straightforward about you know the books are the books and they're not really considered. There are things in the Zon books I think he really liked, but no, he was yeah from even before the prequels. So right as we get into the prequels, he was like no. But then he, as Lucas books sort of consolidated in the prequel era, he they became a little bit more firmer. There's more downward direction, downward narrative control in the books and the comics that sort of gave them, they were all for all intents and purposes. They were sort of canon. I mean, he, there was uh, Terry Brooks wrote the novelization for episode one and George Lucas gave him, they uh, they had a lot of conversations about it and he gave him, some background detail that is not in the movie that no one else knew in particular with Darth Bane, who is the, who is Canon, who uh, uh, is the architect of the Sith rule of two. So there are instances where there's sort of direct authorial sort of involvement, but um, for the most part, no, yeah, not, not Canon, but people fall in love with it. And you're like, well, this is, you know, it's a head Canon. That's a, that's another thing. <laughs> Uh, it's a whole, maybe we could do a whole podcast really about that. I had a conversation this week about headcanon that was really fascinating. Funny um, enough, I just put that on the schedule earlier today. Oh, did you? Yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, headcanon is as valid in many ways, I think, um, especially in some readings and some texts and some situations as anything else. But all these sort of Star Wars world books, Star Trek, things like that. It gave you an opportunity to sort of fill out the world and sort of immerse yourself in the world even more in, in a way that I think, is, you know, is, is especially if you're interested in, you know, the world, you know, the world is the, the universe of Star Trek or the universe of Star Wars. You know, it, it's it's so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you said it earlier, like it came from RPG industry, right? So here it is, you have all this information about a world and, you know, the more information, the easier it is for you to create your own narrative within that world. Yeah. And I think, you know, I maybe let me go back to headcanon just for a, a second. I think what happens, especially if you're a creative person, and, and that's where I came to all of this for, is you start to, as a younger person, as a fan, you start to develop your own headcanon about X, Y, or Z and these shows or books or whatever that you love and then but they don't fit into the structure of what you're you're a fan of for whatever reason there are numerous reasons won't get too deep into it but those in be- this episode 
at least this episode. But those become strands and threads of what eventually becomes your your own story and your own narrative. And you have ideas and you're like, well, I would have done this. Well, and for most people as a fan, that dies right there. Well, I wouldn't have done that. I would have done this. If you're a creative person like you and I are, that becomes, well, I'll just do that then. Right. You know, but that, you know, and that what that takes shape in some form later. And I think the biggest example of that in my own writing is uh, Valene, who is uh, a product of my teenage years. I invented Valene when I was six, 15 or 16 as a character in a X-Men uh, story that I was writing. And she was just so cool that I couldn't let her go. Um, so here she is X amount of years later. So stuff like that. And, you know, people have, I've heard people talk about, well, I thought I, I would have done this in Lord of the Rings, or I would have done that in Star Wars. And that becomes the basis for their own story later on. So, I mean, that, that's sort of a fascinating thing that we will definitely dive into more in sort of a, its own episode, but all these things sort of intersect fandom and headcanon and, and what is or isn't canon. And they sort of, this, the different layers of canon because you know a lot of you know especially in the books that jw rinsler was editing and writing for star wars certainly in some of the visual dictionaries that for people read those and all that sort of minutia the detail for characters with the, well, that was canon but there's nothing to back it up beyond the books and but and there was nothing to contradict it either like the movies were never going to stop in the middle of the movie and be like by the way on page 98 of <laughs> You know, that, that was BS, by the way. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you brought up earlier off the podcast, but the classic epitome of these world building books, the Silmarillion by Tolkien. Yeah. For me, I read The Hobbit, I read The Lord of the Rings, and I got really into that world. And I picked up The Silmarillion, and I could get like maybe 100 pages into it. Like that was it. And I had to, I had to wait till I was, I think, in college before I could pick it up again and read it because yeah it it's very, not very a dense it's not a story right it, it's the it's lore not. about the story that you want to read it's just information about the world it's essentially it's essentially a uh it's essentially the rosetta stone for lord of the rings but it's such an interesting thing for folks at home probably know what the similar lane is if for folks who don't it is encyclopedia is probably not the right way to describe <laughs> it but it, it's um it was it's actually the project of tolkien's entire life the Silmarillion is the basically the legendarium of everything that he wrote in his life going back to when he was a teenager of this world this secondary world he created of which lord of the rings was actually to his mind a small part um, he invented the languages, he invented the lore well in advance of the Lord of the Rings. And Lord of the Rings was actually essentially a vehicle to transport all that great stuff narratively. And he, his ambition was always to publish the Silmarillion. The problem with that was, is that the editors, the publishers could make no sense of it because it would, it had, as you said, has no narrative as such. It's a series of stories and episodes and anecdotes that were, as Christopher Tolkien, his son said, uh, had no order or shape. And so Tolkien passed away in the 70s. Christopher Tolkien then sort of made it his mission to sort of get the book into print. But the book was in the book wasn't a book. 
it was this collection of just random papers that were in numerous versions. I, I pity the poor soul that would ever have to do this for me because I, I, I don't have a Silmarillion, but I, I have, if someone had tomorrow had to come in and sort of make sense of all my different drafts and things like that, they'd be hopeless. So yeah, it's um, basically his notes, right? about the world in large measure what? and then Tolkien would back this before computers obviously Tolkien would make revisions substantial revisions in the margins yeah so it was I'm sure it was a chore for Christopher Tolkien but Silmarillion is the sort of the not just the lodestone for the secondary world of Middle Earth but if for these lore books that followed um, they all sort of sought to, well, they're all like, well, we all have to have a similar, not only do they have to, we all have to write our Tolkien-esque fantasy. <laughs> we have to have a uh, world book, a lore book that is in the mode of Silmarillion. And so you've seen that ever since and, and is diverse. There's nothing like it in Star Wars and, this, and you know, there's no Silmarillion in Star Wars, but the there's uh, it's referenced in some of what is now not canon. There's something within the world of Star Wars called the Journal of the Wills, uh, which is effectively the same thing, right? It's this lore of the mm -hmm. galaxy far, far away. We've never actually seen it in any way, shape, or form. But all of these, Tolkien obviously uh, inspired all of these series, inspired all of this whole genre of heroic fantasy. I mentioned Terry Brooks earlier. Obviously, he wrote, was maybe the... What would people, some might, people might call him the biggest offender. Uh, some people might call him the, you know, he's carrying the torch, but his, his uh, sort of Shannara series, which I think is now 20 or 30 books, he's been writing them since before I was born, is, uh, has itself some world books as well. But, um, and on and on and on. Uh, George R. R. Martin, obviously Game of Thrones, put out a, a world book uh, in the last few years, A World of Ice and Fire. Um, it performs essentially the same function as the Silmarillion, and they're they just go, they're just endless stuff. And in you know, there, there are similar things. And I was a big fan of these when I was a kid. Was in the Marvel Universe, Marvel Comics had the they had the Marvel Universe comic, which wasn't a comic, it was a serial dictionary, a serial encyclopedia of characters, their powers, and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I have, for, mm -hmm. for me, I got most of my Marvel Universe knowledge from the trading cards. Trading cards. Yeah, yeah. Like I remember reading the backs of those. I was like, oh, those that's a really interesting about one. Where is that comic book? For real, like, you know, and the trading cards might actually be a good episode, too, at some point where um, they were a big source, especially in the late 80s, early 90s. When before the trade paperbacks and the graphic novels really took hold and things like these massive moments in comic book history like Dark Phoenix Saga or Days of Future Past were not available to you because yeah. they were 10, 12, whatever years before. Um, but they were constantly being referenced and they were mythic um, at that point. And so I heard that the new Fleer trading cards are quite good. I'm not sure. I have no idea on sort of the current comic book trading cards. Like I don't know anything about them, but they, uh, there's a lot of nostalgia for them. The ones from the nineties, it seems recently, mm -hmm. uh, Marvel comics has been doing a bunch of variant covers lately that sort of, uh, go back to the, some of the Marvel trading card series from the early nineties. I see them, they kind of pop up in conversations about comic books a lot. So that's interesting. You know, those, those are, I have 
fond memories of the trading cards. I have some on my desk. I have some that have never left my desk here. Got Rachel. So Phoenix, this is Marvel Universe. Hey, I remember that one. I series, have that one. It's a series two. Yeah, I have that uh, one. Rachel summers uh phoenix who one of my favorite characters so never has left my desk in the same way that harley quinn we talked about last week my 95 kenner action figure never left my desk so uh you know and all of that stuff and then right on the back here rachel you know there's all this you know it's got her sort of power set right there's like the sort of ranking thing mm -hmm. and then it's got a little bit of biographical information i won't go into rachel's biography because it is complicated but you know gives all the stuff first appearance things like that so that these the cards were these many sort of uh lures lore delivery things right you you they were sort of uh tradable dictionary entries yeah and so all of that was like essential like as a fan of like building your fandom was like learning this detail and minutia and sort of making these characters real uh making the world real and they they were just so much fun and it was about i think one of the greatest things about fandom is the educational part of it and um um learning as much as you can for some people like me if you're artistic, you know, I'm certainly more interested in the creative artistic side of it. And then, but um, if you're not, if you're just interested in the actual lore of all of it, it's just, it's never ending. And so there's all these great avenues to get into it, or the cards or the, the visual dictionaries or these sort of lore books. Um, and then I was about to say, or I did say, I forget, but the Marvel Universe had that sort of encyclopedia that they did back in the 80s, which was just, I, you know, you just poured over that. They, and they did them for all of them, too. They did this for the Transformers. Mm -hmm. uh, for the comic, the Marvel comic book. And I had those two. And that was, that's where all those minor, super minor characters, the super minor transformers, you maybe got one panel and one comic book. You like with the, it, the same with the little detail, they were in the background, yeah. like half in gray shadow. Yeah. yeah. That's, you know, same with the sort of the, the card on the back of the package, the G1 package, that sort of biographical card. Mm -hmm. You got, you got a lot of information there. And for the comic books there, Bob uh, Budiansky, who was the writer of the, the Transformers comic book for Marvel back in the 80s, he wrote all of that stuff, same as Larry Hama did for Joe, so G.I. Joe. So I, I loved all, I ate all of that stuff up. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a great marketing idea, right? Like you just create the characters, you flush them out, and then you let your audience do all of the narratives yeah it, it's, it's sort of you know it, it's, a, it's a little bit of it's an interactive thing before there was real sort of interaction it was you gave we we'll go back to the headcanon thing a little bit you, you people were doing it you don't necessarily even have to be creative to be doing the headcanon you're just doing it automatically the minute you're yep uh, you're encountering this stuff and you're reading the stuff and digesting it. Um, yeah, and, and you just, you start making changes anyway because they make more sense to you, right? Like yeah. in, in Transformers, one of the big ones is, um, uh, well, we can talk about this in, in further episodes, but the origin of the Constructicons, those green construction vehicles, where they come from yeah <laughs> it's they've got so many different origins now that no one knows where they came from so invariably it goes into headcanon of whichever one you like right and you're already part of that creating process yeah especially because this happens right away especially with something like transformers and even star wars but you have differentiating sources you have the animated series you have the comic book you have the the cards the biographical uh, information on the packages these are these are all different. These all had different takes. You know, the continuity in the con Marvel comics 
was different from the Marvel cartoon, certainly. Marvel UK comics? The Marvel UK comics is a completely different thing. You had, I can't remember, I want to say there was sort of like books, Transformers books of some kind, but I don't know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But you had that with, you had that in there, and you had this with Star Wars too, because you had vastly different things that didn't line up between the Marvel comic books, um, the, some of the books, and then the movies, obviously. And then so all of that created these discrepancies and discord within the continuity. It leads fans to sort of invent their own sort of solutions to it or just fill in the blanks themselves in a lot of cases. And then that becomes an industry as things get into West End games, as they get into the proper sort of era of the visual dictionary all and all that stuff they try to reconcile some of that stuff in some cases leads to conflict you know the same thing just creates more issues more issues you have this in comic books proper with you know we talked a little bit last week when we were talking about harley quinn uh all this endless sort of dc comic reboots and retcons and their continuity and it's just sort of become it's what is or isn't canon who knows and you know it that it's sort of it, it it's sort of never ending and so that's a that's another sort of bigger macro subject in terms of canon and fandom and things like that but this all sort of bound up with each other in some of these books but like you know less so i'd say maybe certainly with the similarillion which is sort of i don't know made i couldn't say actually if there's a lot of sort of within lord of the rings fandom if there's i imagine there must be a lot of sort of head canon but it's hard to, i would sort of you know what i mean like i feel like it's sort of hard to argue <laughs> with Tolkien. yeah i mean lord of the rings is well sorry that world is very well fleshed out Although yeah. at the same time, you have these new um, video games that really expand on property. Uh, what is it? War, f- War for Middle Earth? Not sure on the video games. I know there have been a few. Uh, I know they've been Shadow popular. of Mordor. And they're, yeah, it's a video game that takes place in that world, the Lord of the Rings world, but well beforehand so a human has the ring and is using that to control orcs that's a totally new franchise within a franchise right like it's built on top of the middle earth world i wonder how strict things are now that christopher tolkien has passed away um he sort of it seemed to me held a pretty firm grip on things in terms of um, certainly uh, licensing and you know that types uh, type of thing, so I wonder now if things I'm are slightly sure different. It's loosened up because you have a lot going on right now. You have Amazon is developing a series which is going to debut next year, which is going to be set in uh, the Second Age, I believe, and you have an anime uh, movie coming at some point, which is deals with the history of the Rohirrim. You have some of the video games and things like that, and it sort of feels like a broadening out of um, the franchise that's never really happened before, even after the huge Titanic success of the, the trilogy, they, they really held on to the, the strings, I guess, the reins. Well, that's what's interesting, right? The huge success of the trilogy and the utter lack of follow through with the next trilogy with the hobbit because that was universally panned right i still haven't seen it because everyone's telling me just skip it yeah i i think in general i think yeah most people didn't like it i i know i didn't i you know it it was uh miserable yeah (laughs) 
which is a shame coming from Peter Jackson, who obviously was the director of the the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, something happened along the way. I don't know what it was, but um, yeah, misguided. Uh, I would say the trilogy, financially successful, ridiculously it did what it was meant to do. Uh, so far as that's concerned, but creatively, I think yeah, very wanting. And yet, even despite all that, the property is still lucrative enough that it it spawns those two video games which are quite well regarded quite successful mm. and then yeah. the netflix show or the amazon show as you're saying like it hasn't waned no uh, lord, lord of the rings middle earth is perennial you know lord of the rings is something like uh i i, I believe this is still true it's the second biggest selling book of all time and behind to kill a mockingbird uh behind the bible yeah uh it's insane um the interest in the world has never really gone away and so it's i i think this will only you know make generate more fans as they get into the series i i don't know a ton i don't think anybody knows anything about this amazon series other than I think it's set in the second age. So it'd be fascinating to kind of see what they do with it. But yeah, but like just to kind of think about, you know, like in terms of, I'm sure there's fan fiction. I'm sure there's all of that stuff out there, Lord of the Rings. But like, yeah, it, it's sort of, I, I would imagine that it's very hard to quibble with or sort of, you know, sort of like, ah, oh, well, maybe, you know, Professor Tolkien meant this. Like, you <laughs> see such an authorial presence. And it's because it's, it's his world. It's like this complete 360. The Cimmerillion in particular is so comprehensive. And, and I think that's the difference between Lord of the Rings and all of these modern properties, which is that Tolkien developed that world pretty much by himself whereas these modern properties are pretty much made by a committee either both good and bad but like they're made by a group of people that are fleshing out this world and then handing it to consumers whereas lord of the rings was pretty much developed just by J.R. tolkien right it's authorial whereas you know like the marvel universe and the comics is obviously a product of so many people over so many years it leads to inherent sort of contradictions and things within the world different interpretations which i think lend themselves to it's a positive uh for for those stories and lord of the rings though it's a novel the book and then it's this world which really the world preceded as it was saying earlier uh the world preceded the books the hobbit and lord of the rings both it's this world that he sort of lived in creatively populated with all these characters and stories and little tales that were just never i mean it's i believe tolkien I'll double check. I believe Tolkien coined this term mythopoeia to describe what he was talking about. Or he sort of coined the phrase at least creating. No, it's Greek phrase, which but he adopted to describe what he was doing, which is the creation of the personal mythology. So, you know, what he was doing in with certainly with Middle Earth, but then also a number of his peers, including C.S. Lewis in particular with Narnia, uh, were doing. Uh, but then you have other, certainly George Lucas with galaxy far far away uh that's a great example a clear example of myth making and then you know i suppose lovecraft jk rowling the marvel universe is myth making but that's like you said right that's sort of by committee right that's a different sort of architecture Mm -hmm. you sort of it's sort of a baton you're handing that off to someone else so i've it, always been <laughs> good it, it well it reminds me of something that i tell my students when i'm mm -hmm. uh, helping them prepare for like the speech contest or something like that where they have to express their own opinion one of the things i tell them is no more than what you say a very simple thing right like really simple sentence but like <laughs> yeah. with tolkien 
he knew much more than what he said in Lord of the Rings. Like there is so much behind the Lord of the Rings that it, it lent itself an air of authority. And it's the same thing. Like if you're developing the world, but then you only show that which you've developed, you're not going to, it's not going to ring true or legitimate. It's going to have these missing pieces. But if you develop um, it a lot, way more than you need in your world, but then what you end up writing is like the filter down. It it has a, a sense of legitimacy to it. Yeah, I legitimacy i i don't know if, if it's necessarily in the phrase. sense that the the world exists it has rules that it follows by you're not just kind of developing the world by the seat of your pants right like even though it just are. doesn't happen <laughs> randomly there's a, a rule a sense of the Order. world has rules that you're sticking to yeah it has it's organized and i i sort of think of it myself as you're you're leaving doors open and these are doors both proper doors and these are trap doors i do the same thing i'm a big fan of of these obviously these big mythic worlds and i'm doing the same thing in ever the hero and the eververse for folks as they read through the books will be rewarded if they notice certain things in book one that come back around and maybe curious what those red glowing trees are and chapter one of book one it's like that's weird and random it's not random they may be curious who abel strong is and why he keeps getting mentioned stuff like that they maybe want to know more about molly swift molly swift important <laughs> comes up later um so all those these are all doors that are open so in as you were saying this is the part of the iceberg you can't see um this is the part of the world that i'm not talking about on the page but i am talking about because i know it's I obviously know what's happening i know what's going on an example of this in star wars is um in the first star wars is when obi-wan tells luke that obi-wan and anakin fought together in the clone wars this is sort of this insight into the greater history and lore of star wars it gives us illusion of depth and within Tolkien, within Lord of the Rings, there are numerous constant references to the greater lore, the greater mythology of this universe that Tolkien's built and that don't make sense on the page. You don't know what they're really, you know, the legend of Berrien and Luthien, you don't really know. But, but you, the reader, don't have to know. The point don't is have to. that the author does know. Like, for mm -hmm. example, imagine if in Lord of the Rings, but just to use more a more universal example, just randomly at the end, a portal shows up and some soldier carrying a machine gun comes out. See, you're laughing because it breaks the established rules of that world that Tolkien already knew about, right? Like that's how that's what I mean by no more than what you say. Like you you can plant those seeds, whatever, because it's not about the audience. It's about you, the author, knowing more than what you're telling it's yeah I, I i think i called it an iceberg a minute ago and that that's sort of the that yeah. comes from hemingway the iceberg theory of writing which is that you only see this massive iceberg that's floating on the surface is actually just a tiny fraction of the absolutely monstrous thing that's floating beneath the surface yeah and that's that's the same theory applied to fiction, which is that you're only the reader, you're only seeing what's on the surface, what's on the page. So I can only speak for myself. I, you know, I, something like Ever the Hero, you know, I know all about Kit's mom, I know all about Kit's dad. Those are, you know, their histories and how they met and when they met and et cetera, et cetera. They met at a Elvis Presley concert. Those are not things that are in the story that don't really serve a function in the story at the moment at least, but those are doors that open to, you know, the rest of the world, things like that. Um, 
Country of Eternal Light. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago on on the pod here. Um, my latest novel. I've seen some people uh, talk about this in reviews. The father of Maraid's son is never identified in the book. I know who that is, obviously. I, you can figure it out, I think, through context clues. But stuff like that. Um, that's that's not a great example because that's performing on a different level than the stuff that we're talking about. But right. but. Yeah. So you as a writer, hopefully what you're doing is, you know, you have this big giant and you don't as a writer, you don't want to and you probably shouldn't have it all figured out. I'm, I'm, I'm always interested, curious writers who like they write out the whole thing, the outline and they get all the stuff figured out and all the before they even write a word of the actual story. I just I'm not I'm a I'm a pantser. I'm a, you know, I, I discover as I go. So there is, you know, I, there are a lot of things I know. There's a lot of things I know about the end of the story. Uh, there's a lot of things I don't know. Um, and that's part of the discovery. That's part of the process. And so I'm always curious about, you know, folks who've got that all figured out even before they jump into it, like to figure out the entire lineages and his, I don't care about any of that. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, I, I figure out, you know, the important things, I suppose, you know, some important, there are some architectural elements of your story. You should probably know uh, before, as, as you're writing it. And, you know, especially if you're going to do some big, like giant fantasy series or sci-fi series, and you're going to have a series of twists or reveals or whatever, you should probably have some of that plotted out in advance. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you want to get there and be like, and then it was this person. You're like, who is this person? Yeah. So, because that's the dude in the machine gun that teleports in exactly. and kills the mouth of Sauron. Exactly. Like, that, that doesn't fit at all. Does not fit machine guns. Unlikely in middle earth. Right. But so, <laughs> so, I mean, that's the kind of thing about the, the Rinsler books, right? It's like they're, mm. they bring that lore up to the forefront. Like that's just revealing all that stuff that people have thought about and he had just developed them and written, written them down. Yeah, for sure. Those early books, certainly the prequel era books. And then I should say too, for folks um, probably know all this, but the sort of Disney era, sequel era books, those are, this is Pablo Hidalgo who is sort of the custodian of all this sort of lore stuff and he's responsible for that's a all the, pretty big responsibility it's a giant responsibility and uh, he takes it very seriously pablo hidalgo does and um but yeah uh, it, it's it's a lot of fun you know it's a lot of you know it's, it's a great part of sort of you know it's 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 one of those essential aspects of being a fan i think is that you know finding the different layers you know and it's i think i think it's a, it's like it's like being a step to a certain range or whatever. And some people are just really deep divers and they, they want to go as far as they can. So, and I think that's, uh, you know, with the lore and anything that we love, that's kind of, uh, you know, a way to think about it. Not everybody's going to want to or should read the Similarillion, but. That's the thing. Uh, is there anything else you want to say about uh, J.W. Rinsler before we kind of uh, wrap it up? Um, I would just, I think I would just say to kind of reiterate um, what I said before, um, where I'll include some links uh, in the pod to some, you know, his books and things like that. And I uh, just, uh, very fortunate Star Wars fans to have had uh, J.W. Rinsler a part of the journey with us. And I, I think he is as big a part as anyone in the creative side uh, for the sort of the uh, immersion in, into this world. So RIP. Indeed. Uh, so before we sign off here, um, one thing that we wanted to bring up last week as well, but uh, 
we got some really nice feedback and we just wanted to to spend some time and respond to it so again to our audience thank you for listening we love the feedback we definitely appreciate it we love hearing from you and so just thought to take some time to um respond to uh some of the feedback that we got Darb, is there anything you want to start off with? I uh, just said, like I said, I appreciate the the feedback. Um, we got a great email about our Transformers, uh, the trauma of the Transformers '86 movie, our podcast about that, and um, uh, one thing that jumped out at me in the email was uh, our our listener wondered how much influence that cocaine had on the decisions that were went into the creation of the 1986 animated transformers movie it was 1986 a valid question um it was uh there was definitely (laughs) i don't know there 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 was some choices that were made there were some curious uh, i think uh decisions in that and uh it was uh, we we uh, definitely unpacked it on our episode about transformers 86 but it was uh uh, utterly mystifying uh, some of them and, and so I'm glad that that sort of other people think so they uh, they also mentioned just the the transitions the, the actions and the transitions in the movie don't make any sense that's very true yeah uh, this is a this is a movie which is just utterly it's I, I jarring would, yeah I would even add to that that the pacing of the whole movie was really frenetic frenetic and um which is odd it's it's a movie so it's supposed to have sort of a movie sort of quality and the frustrating thing about 86 uh, not to relitigate it is um that um there is a really good movie in there mm-hmm. a really good story and potential and uh if they made it today um it would likely be much much more interesting there's a number of even i'm just thinking of the opening sequence the attack on the planet by unicron there are a number of shots and just just narrative things that are missing that would just make that so much more interesting this is a huge cosmic horrifying thing that happens is absolute just you know destruction of this planet that they absolutely blitz through and then they're like (laughs) transformers and it's like okay yeah just all that yeah just the death of the entire planet right yeah Um, no big deal yeah (laughs) he uh the listener did bring up an interesting point about doesn't really understand why hot raw was asking for prime forgiveness I I agree with that and Hot Rod got a lot of flack from the from the Transformers fans. Like they blamed they blamed Hot Rod for killing Prime, which I never understood that. I was like, yeah, you didn't kill him. <laughs> like there wasn't anything that didn't happen. That's not what happened. <laughs> um yeah, Hot Rod slash Rodimus was not popular really at all. And then most of that was just he wasn't Optimus, so people didn't yeah. like him. The story, the movie makes a choice to put him in a position where it seems like it can be interpreted that his actions have a consequence in the fight with Megatron. Not really. So it's just bad storytelling all up and down, yeah. all up and down. It's just it's just there's no rhyme or reason or justification or anything. It's just bad. Yeah. Uh, our listener compared this to Bambi and Simba. And you know what? Bambi was another movie I cried in. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose they, yeah, they perform similar functions. Uh, you know, the death of Optimus occurs at the same moment narratively, doesn't it? 
uh, yeah. as the death of Bambi's mom to and kind of start uh, the actual plot of the movie. Yeah, and uh, Mustafa, Simba's father, I believe his name was. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, Mustafa. It's same function, the different stories. The, the, you're going into Lion King thinking Simba is the main character, and you're not wrong. You're going into Transformers 86 thinking Optimus Prime is your main character, your hero, and you're wrong because uh, <laughs> he gets murdered. Yeah, not salty about it. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say something that our our listener pointed out, which I think is it was great too, is that even when um at the very end of the movie, Hot Rod kicked Galvatron away, raised up the matrix, and you hear you heard Optimus Prime's voice. Yeah. And then you heard the song again. Yeah. You got the touch, right? And like that was reassuring like he yeah it was it was that was a feel-good moments right like you can't you can't help but listen to that song and think yeah i can i can jump to the moon what i can walk walk across the street without looking what i dare you to come hit me come on i got the touch right like it makes you feel like you're impervious it was the good moment that could have been great It, it all like i said all of the there's a really good movie in there. Uh, all of the beats are there. It's and it's very. I I mentioned this on the pod. It, the story is just ripped out of Star Wars and other sort of mythic traditions. The 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 Matrix of Power oh, yeah. is really is really just Excalibur, isn't it? Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, all of that is there. And it works on that level, but it, as a movie, it is absolutely just a mess. But yeah, but. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah, I think we have sort of a someone who agrees with us for sure <laughs> uh, in general, and so we appreciate that. We appreciate definitely the feedback and the uh, taking the time to reach out to us because you know we would love to know that people are listening and and <laughs> not turning us off the minute we start talking about something. So that's yeah, very and, cool. And one thing I'd love to point out is kind of like the last bit of this feedback. Some of our long-term listeners would have noticed that uh, we've done now close to 30 episodes. Um, I I like to think of it as uh, seasons, just like in TV shows. So for we started season two with this 86 Transformers movie, but some of our long-term listeners will have noticed that we've started bringing on guests. Uh, There's more of that to come. And this person brought up that they were really happy to bring in uh, our previous guests so look forward to to more guests we're we're trying to organize schedules and and content and stuff so yeah uh yeah. really glad that the guests are a positive thing the guests are fun i i i'm i love guests to have on my other pods um movie news network have uh, guests on and i've been a guest on other podcasts and so i enjoy all of that stuff it's always great to have you know other perspective you know especially on things that we're not necessarily you know we sort of uh Suga and i feel like we pretty well got 360 on transformers 86 <laughs> uh but not everything else so it's good to have it's good to have different insight yeah and you know this uh this upcoming season based on our schedules looks to be really fascinating like we're we're both delving into properties that neither of us are overly familiar with so I think we're going to get some really interesting um, perspectives, especially from our from our guests. Absolutely. So stay tuned. That'll do it for today, folks. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, once again, I'm Darby Harn, and you can find out more about me and my books at my website, darbyharn.com. 
And I'm also on Twitter at Darby Harn. Sugu, how can they find you? You can reach me at our email address, shelfwarmers at gmail.com. Send us feedback about the show, your thoughts, opinions, and insights on our perspectives. We're always happy to hear from you, our audience, and we'd love to share your opinions on our next show. Again, that's shelfwarmers at gmail.com. Give us a holler. We love the feedback. We really appreciate it. Appreciate everybody listening. And uh, yeah, let us know what you think. As always, remember to stay safe, wash your hands, practice social distancing, and get vaccinated when you can. Bye-bye. <laughs>